episode 126 of the beyond the pond podcast it's the podcast in which brian and myself utilize the music of fish as a means of getting a listener to listen to other bands so usually not jam bands you know we've strayed from that a bit recently because we love fish we are fish fans sometimes fish fans get a bit myopic can only give you intro info information about their favorite, favorite, favorite band. When it comes to other bands, they can look at you funny, but we're always trying to do something about that or trying to expand your mind, expand your horizons. We are, man. I mean, the task at hand, it's not a very complicated task here. It's, you get a little bit of fish and you get a little bit of reason why you should listen to some fish, but then you get a little bit of a spin-out reason of why you should listen to other music. You can still listen to your fish, but really, you got to have your meat, your potatoes, your greens, your salad, maybe a little bit of garlic bread. All that stuff together is what makes a meal. And we are just trying to make a meal here. That's all we're trying to do. You can't have a taco without sour cream, guacamole, some sort of cheese, some sort of, you know, really nice braised meat, some veggies, maybe a little bit of pico de gallo. This is a little sneak preview for what we're going to talk about later in the episode. But just like you can't have all that stuff. Birria tacos, all the rage here in New York City. Everyone's got birria now. Do they really? Yeah, birria. You can dip it in your... It's the new rage. In your meat sauce. Yeah, that's, that's the new thing. I got no problems with it. It's been here in Denver for quite some time, so I feel really, really good right now finding out that we are ahead of the times in uh, New York City's just catching on to the Denver taco trends. Oh, yeah. No, I have no doubt that the Denver tacos are far and beyond those you can get here in New York City, which I attribute to um, college skiing, hippies, and weed, all of which go really good with tacos. They do. You know, just comparing the cities... You know, we get a, four nights of fish, you get four nights of fish. Sometimes you get a little bit more. Uh, we have a losing baseball team, you have two losing baseball teams. We have a winning basketball team, you have a moderately winning basketball team. We have a good mm. hockey team, you have a good hockey team. Um, where else do we go with this? Oh, we have an embarrassing football team, you have two embarrassing football teams. Two embarrassing football teams. So on and so forth. Our... Uh... Our pastrami probably kicks your pastrami. Yeah, ass. and your pizza rules oh. and the bagels. They keep telling us that they, they and the keep bagels. telling us that Rosenberg's bagels uses New York water. I don't believe it. It's good, but like it's not that good. You can't get a great bagel at five thousand feet. All of this is to say, no, you can't get a good bagel at five thousand feet, and you can't make a taco without all the ingredients that I gave you early on in uh, this top of the episode preview that is going on and on and on. Because you know what. It's 2024. We've moved into a new year. BTP continues onward. It wasn't just a 2023 experiment. We're back. We're here. 
We're hanging. Dave's wearing a dead hat. Mm. We are talking today about a little run that you may have listened to, little run you may have heard about, a New Year's run that Fish played at Madison Square Garden where they did something that we've been asking for for generations of Fish fans. Years and years have gone by and we've been like, oh, maybe they're going to do it tonight. You know, they, they haven't played any of the, you know, they haven't done it. And then they wouldn't do it. And then you'd say, wow, it's a big show coming up. Maybe they're going to do it tonight. They wouldn't do it. And then finally, on December 31st, 2023, Fish truly jammed out ACDC bag. Just an amazing, amazing New Year's run, huh? <laughs> yes. Some of the themes we're going to talk about today in this episode, the 2023 New Year's Eve run discussion, the return of the big bag jam. Was Game Hens 2023 the most special moment in fish history? And what makes a great concept album? So on that note, let us get to the fish. As you heard in that long and winding top of the episode, as well as the intro music that we played there, for those of you in the know, that was the man who stepped into yesterday. We are going to be talking today about Fish's recent run at Madison Square Garden to celebrate their 40th year, the 2023 New Year's Eve run. We're going to focus primarily on Game Henge and what happened there, but we're going to talk a little bit about the rest of the run as well. And we're going to talk about the ACDC bag that happened midway through set two of New Year's Eve, one of the more stunning moments of a stunning show. And then we're going to flip this out and we're going to talk about um, concept albums and some of our favorite concept albums. Because Game Engine in and of itself, that is a concept album. And there are some rules that it follows. There are some qualities that it has that makes it really worth re-listening to and diving into. And one of the reasons that fans continuously asked for it over the years and Fish finally gave it back. Um, but before we get into that, we have some questions that we do have to discuss amongst ourselves. And Dave, I think the biggest question I have just to kick this off, we love putting things into context here in BTP world. It's something we love a little bit too much. Context, context, context. It matters. Why does this matter? In what context, in what universe does this matter? And so I bring that up because this is a very unique New Year's Eve run that we just saw the band play. Um, I don't know musically if I thought it was as quality as 2022, but I thought it had some very special moments and some very good, uh, uh, moments throughout the overall run. I'm curious when you think of fish history, where do you put this run contextually? Like, where would you compare this to other runs in fish history? It's difficult to do given how unique this one was, but, um, for the sake of argument, Probably 2013. Yeah. Largely because um, 
December 29th is the best non-New Year's night in each, easily. Both of them had um, somewhat surprisingly lame December 30ths, but the 31st went up for it with huge crowd-pleasing gags that kind of reach back into the history and resonate with the fish nerds that have been down forever. Uh, I think, by and large, December 31st, 2023 was a better show than December 31st, 2013, but you can certainly compare the JEMP truck gag to something like a game henge in terms of uh, fish history and the fact that the, both the gags largely took place in the second set. Also, um, I mean, yeah, the 28th of uh, both 2013 and 2023, while not bad, was certainly not as good as the 29th in either. So that's that's maybe the only thing that comes to mind is, 20, uh, is 2013. I think the 2013 comp is a strong one. I have two others that I'll share in a second, but I think the 2013 was a strong one because I think there is a sense, once they cross 30 years, I'm sure that there was a moment it, 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 in the tail end of 2013 where they were just like, we're probably not going to celebrate 40 years as a band. Like, is this really going to keep going for another 10 years and hold strong? Let's give a full nostalgic peek back. And so I think that when they got to this point, I mean, at this point in fish history, I'd be really shocked if we don't get to 50 years, just the way that they're playing their health, the balance that they seem to have found with the schedule, the fact that they're playing with a ability of almost feeling like they have nothing left to prove, but also like they still have to prove it to themselves that they can raise the stakes on a night to night basis. And it feels like this could go on for another 10 years, but you don't, you don't know, like as, as aging happens. So I feel like there is, there was a sense going into this year of like, it's 40 years. It's a very special thing. We've seen this taken away from us a couple of times. Let's give everything that we have to hear. Um, the other two runs I was thinking about just briefly are 93 and 95. Um, obviously, you know, stronger overall from a musical standpoint, especially 1995. But those two runs to me felt rooted in that eighties Vermont fish nostalgia while the band was still writing their history. So it was a little bit different. This is much more, their history is set, even if they didn't play another show. But you have in 93, the mix of the aquarium setup, which just, it, it looks very pure to fish's sense of humor and sense of style. Uh, the 30th show is kind of like a, both 30 and 31 are kind of like a journey to game hen show. It's just like greatest hits all played incredibly well. And when I think of 95, I think of, um, you know, you have that classic charting of uh, Worcester to Madison Square Garden for those four shows. And Worcester's 29th show is one of my favorite shows of that overall year and feels like a summation in some cases of the energy of Fall 95. Whereas December 31st has hints of Game Henge in the time machine, the laboratory, um, you know, hints of like this magic beyond the stage that Fish has always exemplified while also being, you know, the summation of everything that Fish had done to that point in time. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, plus that, uh, I think 95 is a pretty good comparison actually because the 29th was by far the best non-New Year's Eve show of that run. I felt very fortunate to have been at that show. Uh, the 30th, 
is good. I think it seemed better at the time in retrospect. Solid, but not for December 1995. No. And then obviously... Very good hood, but aside from that, nothing crazy. Yeah, really good hood. Um, Yeah, great hood. That's about it. Kind of one of my favorite earlier versions of Free, just because you can hear Trey count it off and it sounds like you're really excited, but... um, but yeah, then obviously December thirty first, nineteen ninety five, still could be the best fish show of all time. So I think it is. Yeah, that's a good comparison. Nineteen ninety three, I get the spirit um, that only breaks down because December thirtieth, ninety three is like a top thirty fish show potentially. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a legendary December thirtieth show. Yeah, that back to back the thirtieth to thirty first is pretty rare. Yeah. 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 Speaking of. So December 30th this year did not live up to the hype. By our calculations, this was the first December 30th since 2013 to not blow the roof off of Madison Square Garden and almost destroy the internet. Literally, and 2015 is good. It's got some really great moments. I don't think it's like a bombastic show, but basically since 2016, every single 1230 show has been a holy shit, how are they doing this kind of show? And this was the first one that was not. And it got me thinking, you know, there's a big difference between the vibe on 1230 versus the vibe on 1231. And it was very cool to see 1231 be the star of the overall New Year's run this year. The last couple of years, 1231 shows have not been very good at all. It's really all about the gag. What are your thoughts? Would you trade a good 1230 for a good 1231, or would you keep it as we've typically seen it? Well, why be forced to choose? We didn't have to choose in 1993. Um, <laughs> exactly. There's only one. <laughs> 1230 is generally my favorite night of fish, my favorite fish night of the year. December 30th has really high expectations. Those usually always deliver. I mean, the 31st, it's okay if the music sags a little bit because you just happen to be there in the room with all your friends celebrating New Year's Eve. I mean, the gag, nine times out of ten, is going to be good. So if the music is good on the 31st, that's kind of a bonus. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if forced to choose, I would rather have the big December 30th and then let the 31st be dominated by the gag and party people and assholes like the people next to me on 12 31 13 who are looking at models and instagram the entire time during the show and i scared them and got them to leave in this third set because i don't know why they were there so um yeah <laughs> we sold a guy our spare ticket on 12 31 12 he was sitting right next to us and he went ahead and invited like six of his friends to come and sit in our row. We were like, what the hell are you doing, man? Like we sold you a ticket. Like we know who you are. Why are you bringing all these people here? Um, yeah, I would be the same way. I 1230, a great 1230 show is my favorite type of fish show ever. It feels terrifying. It feels evil. It feels nostalgic. You feel like you're doing something wrong. You know, it feels like sneaking down to see Christmas presents on Christmas Eve and just being like, let's just open one, you know, and, and that, that, that is going to be the best present of the entire Christmas holiday. Um, it feels like 
going to a bar the night before your 21st birthday and just having like a killer time there and being like, none of you know, none of you know, cause I got a good fake ID. Um, that's the 1230 vibe to me. And I'm, I'm here for that vibe. Um, last question before we get into kind of breaking down the run. Obviously we walked away from this run with one big question answered, which was, will they ever play game hinge again? And beyond that, we got some really big moments. Uh, the wave of hope from 1228 and torture from 1229. But you know, part of the reason why we listen to so much fish and why we do this podcast is there's all these smaller moments, the underrated moments, the overlooked moments, what would you say was the most underrated moment of um, the New Year's Eve run that you have gone back to and you would encourage other listeners to go back to? Mike's song from December 28th. Good call. Whereas doesn't have the big, you know, it's not like the Mike song they played this summer at the Garden that has like the big second jam, but the regular Mike song jam, despite not doing a key change, was so interesting. It had some serious... Uh, Trey Anastasio does Tom Morello doing the Bulls on Parade wiki wiki scratchy scratchy solo and it has this bit before the final chords where it just kind of sounds like this gigantic huge noise of darkness which was almost foreshadowing the howl of the multibeast kind of envelops the stage and if he's going to keep doing really cool effects and kind of use Mike song as a jumping off pad to showing off his pedal board and all that goes with it. I'm all for it. So that was a very interesting version of an otherwise standard Mike song. So that should, uh, you should check that out. It was a really good cap on Mike songs 2023 as well. Cause if you think about the, um, uh, the version from MSG over the summer, as well as the version from uh, Dayton uh, or no. Yeah. Dayton. Uh, date and night one uh, from the fall. Yes. They they play, I mean, those are two type two jammed out mic songs, um, but those are also two huge tray effects pedal showcases, especially the Dayton one. And for them to take what Trey showcased with his effects pedal throughout the year, um, as well as how adventurously they played Mike's song throughout the year and condense that into a 10 minute version you can get that just like on a quick commute. It's, it's amazing stuff and really, really inventive. Um, I keep going back to the tube from set one on new year's Eve. It's really fun. Um, they did a big tease in there. It wasn't Mary Tyler Moore. What was it? It might've been because we said it was the Vernon Shirley. And then some people were saying the same song was used in Mary Tyler Moore. So we're gonna make it on yeah, our own. Yeah, okay, Doing okay. Yeah, yeah. So that so so it was Mary Tyler Moore. Um but also Laverne and Shirley. Um yeah, it uh it was it was a really it was a pretty version. It was a version that like it reminded me in some ways of the sand from SPAC that teased uh Munchkinland. You know, in the sense that like Yes. There's something about when Trey teases a um, something in pop culture that is not a hit song, you know, that is a song that you know from film or television or Broadway that really shows that from his childhood. It's like from his childhood, and you know, Trey, 
as uh, is, is a guy of the city, you know, he's a man of the culture, you know, it showcases that his cultural influence goes beyond the jam world and goes into, uh, Broadway songs and goes into classical music and goes into, you know, the way that movies have been made over the last hundred years. I don't know. There's something about it that I love and it, it touches a nerve that is, is very, very, uh, ripe for me. So you get like a really good, funky, really cool tube. Then you get this lyrical aspect. Um, it just, these, these songs, aside from the big jams, like there were some, you know, five to 10 minute long micro jams that happened throughout this set that I thought, or throughout this run that I thought were really strong and really, um, symbolic of where the band has been at throughout, uh, all of 2023. Yeah. That set actually had a very good, like nine minute plus Ruby waves. Totally. Like normally you would obviously think of the big 20 minute plus behemoths that were played, uh, often in 2023. But for uh, a bite-sized version, it's quite excellent. Yeah, and you could kind of tell throughout that set that they they were never going to go too deep. But the fact that they were playing as creatively as they did, um, that set is a little underrated overall, I think. The whole focus of New Year's Eve is going to be set two and three with good reason. But I don't think that they necessarily mailed in set one that they tend to do in those sets where they have a lot on the on the line. You think of like Halloween uh, 2013 when they played Wingsuit. Like that first set is abysmal. Like one of the worst first sets I've ever heard. And it happens on Halloween before they're about to try out something really challenging. You had to imagine the band was slightly nervous to play Game Hinge and they didn't show it really at all during set one. Yeah, New Year's Eve 2013 before the truck. That first set is also yeah not good no. at all. So, so diving into the run, there were a few themes that we kind of unearthed as symbolic of what the band was going for in this run and gave us uh, a bit of insight into kind of where we're at it with Fish as we transition into their, 40, their fourth decade and into this next era, uh, this next period in fish history, whatever happens next, it's all going to kind of be united with this, uh, uh, you know, all together, the way that we've thought about 2013 to 2023 as, um, kind of a unified sound that grows and evolves for fish. Um, one big thing that stuck out, stuck out to me almost immediately when the run started was Trey's focus on the wah pedal. Uh, this was something that Mm. I, you could just immediately see it. He went for it. He was leaning into it. It was in every single jam. It gave jams this kind of, he would use it in an atmospheric and noisy kind of, uh, you know, my bloody Valentine type of way. He would also use it to exemplify, um, chords that he was shredding and would, would add that kind of 97 danceable funk tone, um, it helped lead the band into another thing I kept hearing, which was these kind of darker spaces. You think about the chalk dust torture, parts of the wave of hope, uh, the ACDC bag, which we'll talk about here in a second. Um, the wah pedal seemed to be like, you know, he always has this in, in a four show, you know, a four night New Year's Eve run. There's always that one pedal that kind of rises above the others that he just favors throughout the run. This one definitely was the one that he seemed to favor throughout this run. What were your thoughts on this as kind of, it, it's almost like a return sound, but it really nicely fused in with that, what else he's been doing over the last few years. Yeah, no, I agree with everything that you said there in the sense that he, 
absolutely leaned on the wah more than he has in quite a bit. And our seats were good enough on the 29th that I could couldn't make out his facial expressions. Almost when he used the wah early on, like free and moment dance, he kind of almost like had a grin, like a wink when he was going for it. Like, ha, ha, ha. See what I'm doing here? Yeah, you know. You know what I'm doing. It's my fucking wah pedal. <laughs> so that was, yeah, there was definitely much more than I me. Mean, not, you know, not nearly as much as 1997 with the start and stop jams and all the, like, the James Brown teases and whatnot. But yeah, there was definitely a lot more wah. And there was uh, certainly some very interesting moments of some darkness I know in particular, we mentioned it a, whole, a few times with the Choctaw's Torture from December 29th, which probably has my vote for uh, best jam not played on New Year's Eve. This basically, the second half of that is like Star Wars with the space lasers. So when, uh, That's my third favorite jam of the year overall. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. It's it immediately locked in. It, it's as if he listened to our episode on Krautrock. And just decided I'm gonna play like harmonia for parts of the of this uh, yeah. this overall jam. I mean, there's moments midway through where it's like it's some of the best music I've ever heard in my entire life. What's cool about it is that the toys, being the pedals and pages, since they aren't used for show, they're actually kind of used in the service of pushing the jam forward. So just because they're playing Space Invaders, plus Fishman's driving the whole thing, I remember being there and thinking, oh, someone tell that crazy harpy, Marjorie Taylor Greene, this is where her space lasers are. <laughs> she's found the space lasers. And they're in this Choctaw's torture. So that was, uh, yeah, that was, that was a treat. And the chase that, the probably, I don't know, maybe the second or third best version of Oblivion played in 2023. Very impressive second set at that show. It really was. I mean, that was a standout set. I think um, in in a lot of cases, it it showcased. It almost felt like you know twelve twenty eight. I thought was a really solid show overall. Um, twelve twenty nine, set two felt like the band was at their loosest, and I have to imagine there was a yeah. bit of stress built up towards the thirty first, um, even more so than other New Year's Eve runs. So much so that like, you know, sometimes you get the 29th and 30th, the band just kind of forgets that they have to play a New Year's show and that they're going to stop playing for a couple of months after the New Year's show. And so like everything's building to this and you just get like some of the most magical fish ever. This run felt like they were aware of what was going to happen on New Year's Eve and they were cognizant of it. And the only set that really felt like they just like, Blinders on, let's just play music just for the sake of playing music. And the results spoke for themselves. Um, speaking of which, and like, the Oblivion is a really good case of this. The Wave of Hope is a good case of this. The Bag. It felt as though the darkness that emerged and really dominated the spring tour, but then kind of faded a little bit as we went into summer and things became very joyful, um, very joyous, the the thematic build towards the MSG residency felt like a very positive thing. And it was reflected in the music where the band played, um, you know, very almondsy blissy peaks in a lot of their jams. 
Darkness kind of came back in parts of the fall tour, but it really felt like it came back in earnest um, during this MSG run. Um, did you hear that? And you know, what are your thoughts? Is that just kind of like a natural evolution thing? Is that a seasonal thing? What, what kind of was your takeaway for that? I just thought it's kind of where the band's head was. I mean, they were clearly in a mischievous mood, knowing that and mm. what they had coming on the 31st. I mean, in addition to the chalk dust and oblivion, I mean, you certainly heard it. In the simple, that was in the middle of the Mike song, which kind of unfortunately faded out a bit faster. I think a lot of the people would have liked. Um, I'm trying to think. Certainly the Fuego on December 30th. It was like extremely funky David Gilmore, like they're doing like an Echoes jam out of that Fuego. And then you're correct in that they didn't really blow the roof off in the 30th, although during um, the 13-minute set quoting closing life-saving gun it sounded like they were about to yeah yeah that, that was, was a big moment driving almost sounded like they were jamming like great curve from 1996 talking heads just like i was two inches off the ground being like how did they do this <laughs> i was right i mean that was easily the highlight of the 30th in in my mind that in the fuego and that set i think that's right yeah and I think if you flip those and put those in set two and swap out a few songs in set two, there's a different look to it. There's something about the two jam jamming songs being in set one and set two being a little bit light on jamming that tends to have an impact on the way people listen to shows and kind of receive shows. I mean, by and large, twelve thirty wasn't a bad show. It was just not a December thirtieth show. If you had taken that and put that on like Wednesday night, Wilmington, North Carolina, it's great. You know, the second set was kind of a very, you know, lots of 10-minute song, kind of little dance party, 10-minute micro jam strung together. It's a very enjoyable evening. It's just not December 30th at the Garden. That's something that only, like, Fish fans will really understand if you say it's not December 30th at the Garden. Like, what the hell are you talking about? But Fish fans know. Yeah. You know, no, you're absolutely right. And... It... It's one of those things that um, it's almost the difference between regular season baseball and playoff baseball. You know, you can exactly make a few bullpen errors. Good analogy. Yeah, you can make a few bullpen errors in like a July and August game and get away with it and maybe sneak out the win because the other team's resting their closer because he's, you know, pitched five games in a row and you've got a guy who's on a hot streak. And so, you know, things just work out. But you put that in October and suddenly the mistakes you made are now deadly and the other team is going to be coming at you and they're going to load the bases in the next uh, inning and they're going to bring in their starter because he doesn't need to pitch for two more days. So he shuts you down in the seventh. You know, it's just like there's things that can happen in October that can't happen in July. Um, yeah. On December 30th, Pedro Martinez can come out of the bullpen and throw like seven <laughs> innings. Who's your daddy? Um, let's talk though about New Year's Eve because this is kind of the big feature of this of this overall um uh of this overall run. The band brings back these like big feelings for New Year's Eve and I felt like they in a way that I don't think that they have since um the Jump Truck set uh New Year's Eve 2013. It seemed like they really savored the nostalgia and the fan service element of this 
in a way that felt like they enjoyed it just as much as we did and they needed it just as much as we did. Um, and that for them, I think that they realized that they made the right decision not playing Gamehenge for so, so long to the point that fans just stopped asking for it. So that when they brought it back, everybody wanted it. Um, but nobody was demanding it. Nobody was asking anymore for this because it had been so long that when you bring it back, it's like, you guys have been listening this whole time. Like you felt it the same as we did and you made the right call, like not making this uh, a recurring thing. What were your thoughts overall about this approach? And let's just kind of dive into back and forth about uh, the new year's show and especially the game hinge set. What, what, what did it mean to you? First of all, it was one of the worst kept secrets ever. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's which not, is, it got out quickly. <laughs> which is fine. Um, look, there's nothing wrong with fan service. It was done correctly. I love fan service. I'm a fan of a lot of different aspects of pop culture. I feel it deeply. And if the pop culture wants to give back, I think that's great. And there were so many ways this could have been this could have been done wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I heard Gamehenge on Broadway, I thought, uh oh, does that mean that there's gonna be like Broadway performers are gonna be singing songs as opposed to like the band? Like you're gonna get like Adina Menzel playing Tila, which well that actually might be pretty fucking cool. <laughs> but like, you know, there were there were certainly ways it could have gone sideways. But at the end of the day, it's just a really solid game handset that can be enjoyed in headphones apart from watching the spectacle on their YouTube channel. The spectacle never gets in the way of the music. It was a very good balance, but also you can watch it and enhances everything. Like I was, I'll tell you, I watched New Year's on my couch with my nine-year-old daughter who is quite the burgeoning fish fan because all she fucking does is ask me questions about my favorite shows now and like quizzes me in episodes of Beyond the Pond which is kind of creepy but I'm <laughs> I'm all for it so I watched that with her and she's watching Harpoo and she's like I love this I don't know what this is but I love this and watching it with my wife and then at the point when the rhombus comes out of the stage I say oh my god it's the rhombus my wife gives me a look like, the fuck is this shit? But Gamehenge is proof that, look, if you haven't grown up with this and haven't lived with it your entire life, obviously you're not going to enjoy it as much. But for those of us who have, it was, I got Missy died. I was like literally starting to cry when the rhombus came up because I'm like, oh, wow. It means as much to the fish as it means to the fans. Yeah. So I was... Uh, you know, I mean, when like the multi-beast is walking and I said, oh, look, it's the multi-beast. That got like, another dirty look from the wife. But it's just, it was almost like really, and I say this with kindness, it was like really a well-done community theater. Almost like uh, that Christopher Guest movie, like Waiting for Guffman. Like it yeah. wasn't overkill. It was yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. done like a bread and puppet theater style Paper mache, really good like college project artwork. You know, it was just enough to show that they really cared, but not enough to take away from the music. So I was, 
I couldn't stop grinning for two and a half hours. Yeah, yeah, all that. And and I think, you know, to, just to your point about the, the presentation, it felt in the spirit of the album itself and of the performance, uh, you know, of the concept of The Man Who Stepped In Yesterday, which if you think about it, is a Trey College project that yeah. never made it beyond that. You know, they played a few versions into the 90s, but it never it never became a truly marketable thing for the band outside of mystique among the fans. And so like the idea of game Henge is trapped in the 1980s in Vermont and in bread and puppet. And so for that to be realized in Madison square garden was such a cool symbol of fish emerging in the 1980s with these crazy ideas artistically that no one is asking for that suddenly take over this segment of the population that is enough to make fish multimillionaires and get to do whatever they want and have like these awesome lives where they are just creative and pour their entire heart and soul into creativity like and give back to their fans like the presentation of Gamehenge was all in the spirit of that in such a cool way um yeah, I mean, I, I relate a lot to your experience watching. I was at home. My son, who is eight years old, is expressing interest in fish. We are hoping to take him to his first show this summer, which is something I never thought I would say, but he is like super gung ho <laughs> about going to a dick show. We're now considering he'll go to my hundredth show, and that will be his first show, and that sort of symmetry will work for us going forward. Um, TBD on all that, but he was reading the Fish Companion, the 2015, 2016 edition that Fish.net put, the Mockingbird Foundation put out. And I was just telling him shows to look at and read about. And he was, his brain was exploding, similar to what you're talking about with Hannah. It's really, really cool seeing our oldest kids like actually get this thing that we're into. And the fact that he was there on the couch with me as fish was playing game engine, I got to share in my excitement with, uh, with him. Uh, it's, it was one of the most special things I'll ever experience. I think from a fish standpoint, we've said it a couple of times, but I think it's just worth noting again, like you got into fish in the mid nineties. You saw your first show in June, 1995. I got into fish in the early two thousands. I saw my first show on two twenty Oh three. Neither one of us, were seeing this band when they were still playing Game Hedge. They've only played Game Hedge five times now, four times before this. You and I have been seeing this band for a long time. There are a lot of iterations of this band that we have heard. There are a lot of ups and downs, and all of that existed within a world where the band never brought this thing back. And it was just, it was off the table. Everyone said that they were going to play it at Coventry. Nope. Everyone said that they were going to play it at Indio. Nope. Everyone said they're going to play it at Magdaball. Nope, didn't happen. Everyone said they were going to do it in 2013. Didn't happen. They just kept holding it out, holding it out. And then they brought it back to celebrate who this band is at 40 years. Um, and I thought they did it in a very tasteful way. I thought that they did it in a way that uh, pushed the story forward. And, and perhaps we, we talk a little bit about that. Like they restructured the Game Henge narrative. And that is one mm. of kind of the initial most obvious changes of what they did here was they played it across two sets, um, but they shifted around the overall uh, uh, song structure of this. So the way that this read uh, from the man who stepped in yesterday, we went to lizards 
in a puncher in the eye, in an ACDC bag, in a Tila, in a Llama, Wilson, Sloth, Divided Sky, Set Break, McGrupp, Colonel Forbins, Famous Mockingbird. And theoretically, Famous Mockingbird ends the overall story here with the Famous Mockingbird uh, saving Gamehenge. And we don't have the back half of the story where um, all this evil and destruction happens and Colonel Forbin turns evil. That that doesn't occur in this narrative. We then go into the new year and we're out of Gamehenge. What were your thoughts on the way that this was restructured and did that impact your way of listening to it, either positively or negatively? Well, basically, we got the uh, GEU, the Gamehenge Expanded Universe. <laughs> Getting... Your songs like Llama and Punch You in the Eye and Divided Sky that kind of obliquely reference Game Hinge or weren't part of Trey's senior thesis. I, I I thought it was great. I mean, the people that complain about the narrative online or the complain that they didn't play Iculus or just kind of get over yourself. It's like, um, what's his name? Mark E. Smith, the late great frontman of The Fall whose band went through 800 lineup changes, once said, if it's me and your granny on bongos, it's the fall. So if it's Trey, Mike, and Fish, and they're playing Lizards, and ACDC back, and Sloth, and it's got narration, it's Gamehenge. So I thought it was great. I mean, one, I guess, before watching it, the only kind of curmudgeonly thing I thought was... You know, I would have, like I said before, watching it, I thought maybe I would have preferred if they pick like a random Wednesday night in Nebraska just to like drop Game Hinges, a complete surprise. But then I realized that they did that in Nebraska. There's no Andy Golden. There's no Dancing Lizards. There's no Joe Lampert doing the role of, of a lifetime as Aaron Wolf. So in order to get it right, you had to plan it out months in advance and have access to a lot of, you know, off-Broadway type New York actors willing and able to do the big gig. So that was one reason that I'm glad they did it in New York versus like a random drop someplace. And I, does anyone know if like Joe Lampert was, was, were they a fan of Gamehenge before? I mean, I... I've seen them with um, certainly with Tab and with the Beacon Jams and like some other places. But in order to embody Aaron Wolf like that, you kind of had to have some familiarity with Gamehenge before, no? Yeah, I mean, I have no idea if they were, but um, I mean, it was an <laughs> incredible performance. It like there are varying <laughs> takes on Wilson. And sometimes Trey is feeling it. Sometimes he's just playing the song and having fun. There are nights where he seems to embody the spirit of Wilson in a joking manner towards the fans, but it's a rare thing. Um, Joe Lampert was Wilson for all intents and purposes. Like it was, it was the I mean, Aaron Wolf or Aaron Wolf, excuse me. But the, but of Wolf, of, yeah. of, the, of the like the the the. Um, the aggression and the anger at what Wilson causes, like Joe Lampert embodied that in, in a way that <laughs> I think the show needed. And I think to when your they... point, like 
if this had been done on a Wednesday in Nebraska and you don't get the actors and you don't get the props, um, you require a bit more narration. Like one thing I loved about this was that this was the most narrating light game henge. And granted, I liked train narration a lot. Like, and I love listening to like the, um, like the great woods or the crest theater game henge where he really goes into detail about what's happening, guides you along. But I can imagine that for the other guys in the band that became kind of like, all right, let's not do that this often. Like that's, let's not, be talking that this much at, at a rock show. Um, so I think that number one, but I also think the song lyrics are so descriptive about where the story is going that they let the lyrics tell the story. And as we heard in the ACDC bag, they let the music tell the story in a way. And the way that they shifted around the narrative, you know, where you have rather than let's meet Forbin, let's meet the lizards. Now let's meet Tila. Now let's meet Wilson. It all felt a little bit more thematic where like we go into game henge and then now we have a different perspective of this kayaker coming into game henge and seeing it, uh, while we meet some characters within this and then let's go into ACDC bag. And while I had, slight issue with this not being after Wilson, because it does seem to make sense to me that you meet Wilson and then you meet his accountant and his accountant gets hung. It still was a really amazing version where we hear, uh, not so much that Mr. Palmer has been, um, caught midway through the rebellion, but he's caught early on and the rebellion has to continue to grow and continue to establish itself. And this is what brings on the multi-beast, which introduces us Tila. It just allowed the music to tell the story in a way that it hasn't in the past. It felt very much like narration song, narration song, because that was the way that Trey had to tell you the story, what was happening. Now you got to actually just hear it and feel it in a really cool way. Yeah, that was, if I was going to have one gripe where they placed the ACDC bag, I mean, that's the whole point is uh, the accountant getting murdered by the ACDC bag. That's what sets everyone really off in the original story. Yeah, right, right. And so this, you, anyway. you lose that, you get a little bit more that like Mr. Palmer was an important person who was killed. And because he was killed, it sets off this rage and these battles and it kind of extended the battle aspect of the story a little bit longer because you then get it basically from ACDC bag through the sloth when the first attempt to kill Wilson is. Then you also get Aaron Wolf and Annie Golden as Jimmy from Harpoo's grandmother yelling, EGALITY! Running across the stage, and then before he punch you in the eye, the lights show like the French flag. Which I is, loved it. That's some hilarious Les Mis inside baseball. I loved that's it. Like... I loved it so much. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've always seen. Some oh hilarious. god, there's such. I, I actually dorks. understood French Revolution history in college early on by way of Game Hinge. So I, I really appreciated that. That was my <laughs> entry point to like why the French Revolution was important. Um, what else? Is there anything else that you want to say about Gamehenge? I have a few additional questions before we get to the music, but is there anything else you want to say about Gamehenge? Um, as I said before, the Ramos is a really nice touch. I, I thought was, so too. Was was great to see, especially have 
you and I have seen and touched the rhombus with Tom Marshall. So, you know, the rhombus is a early important part of, of Beyond the Pond. It is, and it's... I loved the symbolic touch of the band playing within the rhombus because that that thing, like, you know, Trey and Tom talk about how hanging out there on Friday nights, tripping on mushrooms, writing songs, is like the origin of fish. And so them playing within it is kind of like this symbol of the rhombus created this band and now, you know, they forever will play within this. Um, I loved it. Um, I would just say actually one um, last thing about the actress who played Jimmy's grandma being Annie Golden. Um, I think a lot of people are probably most familiar with her. She was a role in Orange is the New Black. Back in the days of CBGB, she was a singer for a punk band called The Shirts. I think you can actually see some of that on YouTube. Um, she's been a character actress in Broadway and Off-Broadway for a while. And she actually starred recently in an Off-Broadway. was a Joe Iconis written show called Broadway Bounty Hunter that it was kind of a cult favorite. It didn't get too far, but I think you can get the soundtrack. on. Um, it's like, uh, the soundtrack is streaming, and it's actually really good and really campy and plays to her strengths. So that was a, a big bonus to see her in there. She's also is actually in an excellent episode of uh, the web series turned HBO series High Maintenance. Mm. She was mm. in a great high-maintenance episode where she plays the roommate of a guy who sits on the couch smoking the weed and listening to fish. <laughs> so there's some symmetry. There it is. I love it. Um, all right, a couple rapid-fire questions for you. Um, this was the best New Year's Eve show since when? Um, Cyprus. I think that's probably true. My initial thought went to 2015, but I think you're right. Like this was too big, too special, too much of a yeah, just amazing moment for the band. Um, 20. I mean, when I was going over in my head and posting stuff in Mastodon, I mean, I probably said best since 2015, maybe best in Cyprus. I think Cyprus have a, a easily the best since 2015, being um. 2015 had an incredible hourglass set three, no man, no man's land, blaze on improv. Yeah. But this to me is just uh, the fishiest thing since Cyprus. Yeah. And you don't get the first set of 2013. That was a bit of a disappointment. Um, yeah. You get this full show basically and a full nostalgic deep dive that also has great jamming moments, which we're going to talk about in one second. Um, we are now three years into 4.0. This sound that the band found in 2021, it continues to evolve. What are your kind of quick thoughts on where we are sonically with fish at the end of 2023 at the onset of 2024? Um, I think we're at a point where Trey's gotten very, comfortable with his sounds with his pedals the fact that he can probably do more things than he was able to back in 20 I mean, it's kind of the evolution of the sound he started in in 2021 2022 is a lot of him trying to find his tone again and i think he got to where he was happy in 2023 so curious as to where we go in 2024 um 
but certainly I think the summer Madison Square Garden run and the most recent New Year's run is probably the most best realization of the sound that he's been building to post-pandemic. 100% agree. I think the only thing I would add to all that is uh, Mike reemerged really nicely this year, and I think part of that is that the, yeah. the effects were less showy, as you said earlier, and more complimentary to a jam, where Trey wasn't necessarily throwing in the Jedi pedal just to kind of like shake things up. He was playing effects mm-hmm. when it felt necessary, and it felt like an addition to a jam, and that allowed Mike more space. It allowed Paige more space. Fishman is just insane. Um, I think, you know, one jam that I keep going back to that is really exemplary of the sound I love about this year is the 422 Chalk Dust Torture, where Fishman Oy, and Trey yeah. are just like playing in circles of each other. Mike is playing this amazing stuff and Paige is all over the... It's so easy to take John Fishman for granted oh. because it, it's just, you get so used to it that when you watch other drummers, you say, oh, wait... He does shit that nobody can do. And he doesn't break a sweat while he's doing it. It's really... I've run out of ways to describe it. I've run out of... It's one of those things in my life that, like... It's it's one of the few things that's incapable of disappointing me. Mm. Like, I'm a Chicago Cubs fan. And I expect that... Most of the time, I'm going to be fairly disappointed in what they do. Um, I, you know, uh, for all the other bands that I love, there's an album that they're going to put out where there's going to be songs that don't fully connect with me. Even other members of Fish are going to make choices where I'm like, I don't know if I would do that. I don't know of a bad thing that Fishman decides to do. Like, and, and it just, it won't stop. It's just consistently, night after night, he seems to be the most consistent, strongest member of the band. And then they play a big jam and it's never him cutting it off. And it's never him necessarily adding onto it. It's him just, his presence making it that much better. Like he's been playing drums at Tranastasia now for say, I don't know, 43 years. And you watch the webcast enough, you'll see that there'll be times when Trail just turn back to look at the drum kit, like, "What? What are you doing, man? <laughs> like, what? How the hell did you do that? Like, oh, oh, holy shit! Um, one wish that you have for twenty twenty four fish. It's a very personal wish. I still haven't seen Fish play Mercury yet. And I'd like to in 2024. I want to step before I die. That's a um, Aside from that, I really, I really love it when they do things. I love the crat rock jams. I love when fishing goes into the motoric beat. I love when the synths, Paige's synths and Trey's laser effects kind of lock in one another. Like the last five or so minutes, that chalk just torture, that's definitely my, that's my, like Rosetta Stone of Fish 4.0. So more of that. Give me more of that and more and interesting in like different places where you wouldn't expect to find it. And we'll, let's go from there. Also, if Fish wants to return to Bethel Woods at a time and date that I can actually attend, I wouldn't mind that either in 2024. I'll tell you right now, I cannot 
go to Monja Green for a variety of reasons, but I'm happy to stream it. So I'm excited to stream that. Um, all right, I have one personal wish and one fish, fish general wish. Uh, my personal wish, uh, my wife and I are going to Mexico this year. And this has been a long time in the works and we're going to go to Mexico this year. And my wife has seen, I don't know, 105, 106 shows and she has never seen a day in the life. And really? She's never seen it. That wow. is her white whale. That is her Albuquerque. And um, she's had a year. She's had quite a year. And I would love nothing more than to see her reaction if they encored with A Day in the Life uh, during one of the shows. So I'm just going to throw it out there in the universe. You guys do what you will with that. Uh, that is my that is my dream. Um, my fish dream is it's an even number year, which typically means it's going to have disappointing stretches and evolution and a bit more frustrating moments. And I don't necessarily want fish to break the trend, if you will. Like I am on board for an up and down year. If that's what we have, I'm fine with that. Um, I think the one request I would have, if, if we're going to have that sort of transitional year that we typically seem to do every other year and usually in even numbered years, if there's one area I would love the band to continue focusing as much attention on as possible, it is in the fourth quarter of shows. I could, I could take any weird set listing, any cutoff jams. I would just love for more complete shows. I think that that would be um, a good thing. And that would allow us to hear the band work through some stuff, figure some things out, incorporate some new sounds, while also playing more complete shows. Because when we get a good fourth quarter, it means usually that we got a really good show. And a really good show allows you to kind of hear the depths and the highs and lows of the band's evolution as they're going forward. And if somebody wants to somehow find me a ticket to the sphere, I wouldn't mind that either. Cause I tried and failed. And some people are crazy enough to go to Vegas without tickets. That's not me. If I don't have one in my hand, I ain't going to Vegas. No, I the only thing that could get me to go to V. Ve- yeah. No, <laughs> not, uh, no. Somebody get this man a I'm ticket. Gonna, he deserves it. He deserves I'm, to see when the edge walks on stage and plays mysterious yes. ways with fish in the sphere. Um, all right, before we get to the music, we do have to talk very, very quickly about the big shock standout jam of the New Year's show, which was the ACDC bag. This The band has flirted with uh, ACDC bag jams in the last couple of years, uh, the man, 2022, Meriwether post, um, a couple others. I know I'm forgetting. There was one from, uh, MSG this last year. This was the first real bag that we've had since Coventry. Yeah. What were your thoughts on this? This was awesome. I think I said that if they had done game henge, the Jewish people said, Dayenu, that would have been enough. But not only did they do Game Henge, but they threw like a 23-minute ACDC bag into the Game Henge. Like, holy fucking shit. Um, yeah. This was the ACDC bag that accompanied 
the March of the Multibeast, obviously with Tila riding atop the Multibeast. The Multibeast being a three-headed bread and puppet theater, paper mache looking kind of thing with some puppeteers walking through the crowd at MSG while Fish played this loud building apocalyptic slow volcanic ACDC bag which kind of felt like a stegosaurus roaming the Jurassic period much like the <laughs> multibeast was like yeah. roaming through the audience and I think there might have even been a sound or a sample to approximate like the cry of the multibeast but it was kind of what we saw it was going we're like oh all right you guys are really going for this huh okay okay because uh, the ones you mentioned were like type 1.5, 13, 12-minute ACDC bags, which, well, you know, much better than the standard, or not this 20-plus-minute volcanic mountain-climbing soundtrack to the Multibeast. Yeah, the ones we've gotten have been good, but they've all felt like the thrill is that they're playing ACDC bag longer than seven minutes you know what i mean like it yeah. never has felt like a fully committed jam this felt like a fully committed jam in the way that acdc bag used to be thinking of 11 21 97 12 30 97 11 7 98 9 14 99 8 14 2004 these big show highlight jams that were multi uh, segmented and really showcased where the band was at sonically during that period through this song. It's a really interesting thing to me. I mean, this version felt both purposeful, like it was there to guide the multi-beast in. And so there wasn't a ton of like modulation. It was very much like Trey heavy, let Trey guide the ship, let Trey kind of lean into it. Very Hendrixy. felt like those like shoegazy end of jam, uh, segments from fall 1997 thinking like the Wolfman's brother from champagne or the tweezer from the palace um, or the, I think it's Prince Caspian from Albany, but you know, done through 2023 Sonics. Um, but I'm curious for your, from you, like what is it about this song that makes it such when it does jam, it's inconsistent in terms of jamming, but when it does jam, it seems to lead to really standout versions. Is there something about the song itself that you think caters well to jamming? Not exactly. I mean, it's a pretty basic five chord, like rock and roll song. I mean, in the sense that it can be very open-ended when he just decides, when Trey decides to jam it. I mean, it's just because the ones that are big are all great. Like, there's certainly, you can count on a few hands, like, you know, 20-plus minute versions of Tweezer that are too long or not terribly interesting, especially back at 1.0. But each of the ACDC bags that goes 20-plus, they're all great. Like, none of the ones you mentioned are any less than, like, a highlight of the year that they happen to be in. So it has a a good pedigree like when it goes 20 plus minutes it's done with a purpose and that's certainly the case here um out of the ones that you mentioned i think this probably has the most in common with the november 21st version yeah which was a big 
pedal heavy My Bloody Valentine shoegaze behemoth that didn't have so much like drive and pickup. It just kind of like stood there like Godzilla and just like fucking crushed Hampton Coliseum. This was this was actually a portion of this reminded me of um, the Berkeley Tweezer from April this past year. It has like a very heavy mm-hmm. Zeppelin-y mountain climbing portion of it where you almost like feel like you're getting crushed by the weight of the guitar and that was kind of in that vein i think yeah i mean i was thinking like from a song standpoint like this song it's not like this but it is uh oblivion like this song is about an execution a public execution for right perceived you know treason and it's a war crime song like it's it's a it's an intense song that they're writing about about you know this dictator who decides to take out publicly one of his closest associates and all of these versions is hanging at least she won't die wondering at least she won't i mean it's really really maniacal stuff um looking at some of these versions that we mentioned like they don't really tread aside from parts of 11798 and parts of 91489 acdc bag doesn't really tread in like pretty waters it goes into a minor keyed evil sounding jam that allows the band to kind of explore the depths of darkness and whatever they're feeling it's it's a really cool feature but do you have a favorite of these so Six of them together, 112197, 121297, 11798, 91904, and 121423. Do you have a favorite? November 21st, 97 will always be my favorite ACDC bag because that takes me back to my Trey loves my bloody Valentine. And then try to go back to doing whatever I was doing. We did that jam in BTP episode Second. two, where we focused on yeah. gays. Uh awesome right. episode. Uh we also talked about Miles Davis in that episode. Um you played in a silent way, which was awesome. Mm. Um for me, it's all about the Boise version, 914.99. Um, that is perhaps my favorite fish jam of all time. It's definitely a top five mm. favorite fish jam for me. Um, I We did that with Jake Cohen, right? We did that with Jake Cohen where we talked about kind right. of Euro dance and electronic music associated with the mid part, mid portion of that jam. Um, I could kind of, I could probably hum that jam by heart. I've listened to it so many times. Um, it's a great picture someone has of me when I was uh, in early college uh, on some psychedelics, sitting at my my desk in my dorm room with my speakers held to my ear while that ACDC bag was jamming. And apparently I was quoted as saying, I can't get close enough to the music. And that was my sentiment <laughs> listening to that jam. <laughs> oh, we've all been there. <laughs> and on that note, if 
Brian was near to the music, he won't be far from the music. Let's listen to the ACDC bag from December 31st, 2023.
hope you all are close, very close to the music. I hope you felt that. I hope that you can see the multi-beast as it emerges from the shadows, traverses the floor of Wooks, and joins the band on stage to deliver Tila. What an amazing moment. Once again, thank you, Fish, for bringing back Gamehenge. Thank you for... What an amazing year of Fish. 2023 was incredible. Uh, one of my favorite years of Fish that we've had in the whole time I've been listening to this band. I'm so, so thankful for it. Now, of course, there were some great jams that were played over the New Year's run. Of course, they played some great songs. But the biggest thing, as we talked about, is that they played Gamehenge for the first time since 7, 8, 1994. What is Gamehenge if not a concept album? This is Fish's concept album that if they were a band in the 1970s on a nice record deal, they would slave away for years. Little bits and pieces here in the press about, oh, we're writing an album about peered around Stonehenge and this young farmer and what he went through and they had this fucking grand philosophy and Rolling Stone would write up like a 20,000 word piece on it. And then the album may never come out or would come out as a completely different shell of itself or would come out as a double disc album that would be called Bloated and the band would be forced to tour on that concept for years until they finally said, I don't want to fucking hear Game Edge ever again. But that didn't happen. Because by the time Fish became Fish, the idea of making a concept album about Gamehenge wasn't necessarily the coolest idea that they could have had. But that doesn't stop us from diving into the world of concept albums. David, walk us through what is a concept album and what makes a great concept album? Concept album is where... It's not just a bunch of disparate songs about disparate things. Concept album has songs that tell a story. And the band will let you know that they're supposed to tell a story because they will talk to the press in the liner notes. And there may even, some, some instances, be a graphic comic book to accompany the story. And the best concept albums... You don't really have to understand it to enjoy it. It may enhance an idea. It may make for a fun narrative. But you can rock out to it without having to know the story or even understand the story. Because most of them are so convoluted and so silly that without the hooks and rock and roll to sell it, if it was a story by itself, it would go nowhere. But... If it's got the songs, if it's got the rock and roll, if you don't have to nerd out to it, that's what makes a good concept record. The concept enhances the idea as opposed to lording over it. So my favorites, uh, some of which we're going to discuss, I tried to pick slightly less obvious concept albums. I don't understand anything about them. I can only give you the kind of barest bones idea about what they're really about, but they all fucking rock. What say you, Brian, what makes a good concept album? I almost feel like the concept album is one of the great 
mythologies in rock music that often never fully delivers. It, it, it delivers an mm. idea than it does in practice. Um, I think you're right. Like the best ones of these, and I think that we have a really good collection of concept records here. Um, but the best of these allow a little bit of leeway and flexibility where the story can go off and to a digression where good songs emerge. I think that where concept albums tend to become a bit laborious and a bit of a bore is when every single song has to do with the subject matter. And it just feels like that's what the stage is for. That's not necessarily where the record is for. I almost think about the difference between dark side of the moon, wish you were here versus the wall. Whereas, yeah, I was just going to say that Uh, the wall to me, the wall is constantly beating you over the head with its cleverness Roger Waters is saying, look at me. I am so clever, and this is so dark, and this is so important. Whereas, Wish You Were Here and Animals, even. Yeah. You can just enjoy on its own. Yeah, and like, Wish You Were Here, like, the story is told through Shine On You, Crazy Diamond. Like, the music, it's, it's kind of like what we were talking about with Gamehenge in this recent performance. The music tells the story. And... right. You know, so there's a compositional aspect to that where like you can listen to a classical piece and there's a story being told, but you're not being told what the story is. You're imagining it in your head based on the way the music goes. And so you get that in like Dark Side of the Moon. You get that in Wish You Were Here, The Wall. Yeah, it's just like every song has to fill in the gaps. And so there's some islands of great moments and then a lot of just like, okay, we got to get through this. Um I just remember though, like when I was first getting into music by way of rock and roll, this idea of these guys aren't just writing songs. They're not just playing on stage. They're getting in the studio and they're crafting stories. Like that concept blew me away as a kid. And it took a long time for me to kind of get to a point where I was like, okay, I'm good on that. (laughs) Like I was just, I was fascinated Mm -hmm. with the fact that like an artist would like not just make an album, but would make an album that told a story. And I think where I'm at in my life right now, like, again, I like all these records that we're going to be sharing. I like the, I mean, one of these records is one of my five to 10 favorite records of all time. But the thing I like about these albums is that you can listen to them and not necessarily think about the story. Or you can listen to them and focus entirely on the story. There's that push and pull. Because I think one thing that uh, most concept albums are missing are great songs. Like a lot of bands write Mm. albums with really great songs and then they release a concept album and it's all in service to the story. Um, And it just ends up feeling like you're getting a novel pushed through your ears in a way that you're not asking for with an album. That's a good way to put it. So... I'm going to kick off. we got three records here. Yes. First one I'm going to discuss over briefly is an album that came out in 2005. The Hold Steady, Separation Sunday. Going to play the second song called uh, Cattle and the Creeping Things. So Hold Steady, this is their second record. The front man, Craig Finn, very verbose, very animated, kind of 
like the crazy guy down at the end of the bar just putting back Budweiser after Budweiser and telling you stories. So this album is essentially, it's about this character named Holly, who's from the Midwest. Maybe she's from Minnesota. She's a bit of a drug addict, possibly a prostitute, also possibly a born-again Christian. There's a drug dealer in the story named Charlemagne, and sort of Craig Finn kind of follows them from party to party to redemption to redemption. There's lots of biblical allusions in the book, uh, in the album. There's a few songs just talk about the book of Revelation. There's uh, a song where basically Holly gets born again. But at the end, uh, there's songs about her being dunked in the Mississippi River. There's also a song where she's basically a hood rat, your little hood rat friend. It's one of the few songs that actually has a chorus. And being that's a whole steady record, on this one, the lyrics aren't sung so much as kind of shouted at you while the band kind of plays this like ACDC two guitar version of rock and roll behind you in lockstep. And no matter how many times I listen to this record, I don't understand how the rhythm section plays in time because Craig Finnish is kind of shouting and doing whatever he wants over it. That was the last Hold Steady record in this vein. Uh, subsequent ones like Boys and Girls in America and Stay Positive were more song-based. Although Holly, this character, actually surfaces on the first Hold Steady record, almost killed me, and I think also shows up in aspects of... Uh, Boys and Girls in America, and Stay Positive. Because Craig Finn loves to write about what he knows, which is basically interesting people in the Midwest that are involved in God and may be doing drugs. Really, at the end of the day, they're all just trying the best that they can. I think the only person who completely understands this album is Craig Finn, but you can definitely go down a, uh, a genius.com slash like Wikipedia rabbit hole into all the meanings of uh, Separation Sunday. End of the day, great rock record. When they play songs from it live, people lose their shit. Your Little Hood Rat Friend is one of the classic Hold Steady songs that has like a great spoken word breakdown in the middle of it that's always a highlight of the live show where they blast confetti. So, a good concept record. A little convoluted. Similar to that, my first selection here is also one of my favorite albums that has ever been made and a record that you can listen to for the concept or you could dip in and out of the concept or you could ask yourself, what does the lead single have anything to do with the concept? Um, regardless, you listen to this record over and over again because of really high quality songs, which is the thing that separates it for a lot for me in a lot of ways. And that is none other than the kinks Lola versus the power man and the money go round part one. You know, it's a concept record when there's a part one, because it means that there's going to be a part two. There has to be a part two, doesn't there? There was never a part two. This was the only one, which is part of the thing that makes it timeless to a certain degree, but also, um, what allows you to celebrate the uh, uh, the songs on it versus just the concept. But so this is a record that came out of the Kinks' reemergence in American touring, which they were banned from in 1965. Uh, five years later, they start to plan out a North American tour. They're finally led back to the United States um, because their songwriting in the mid '60s was too lewd 
for the conservative United States. They were allowed back in, but due to health issues and travel concerns, uh, they only played five shows on that tour. They started writing songs and they started writing songs about how shit the music industry was in England. So this is a satirical appraisal. The music industry talks about song publishers, unions, the press, accountants, business managers, life on the road. It's really just a, hey, bud, you want to get in the music industry? Here's how fucked you're going to get. Um, and it walks you <laughs> through the tale of a band as they emerge, as creativity you're, you know, bubbles out of their head and their hearts. Um, you hear a bit of love in terms of the main character wanting just a simple life where I make a little bit of money making music and I bring you home some wine at the end of the night. And isn't that all we're asking for? But no, there's all these evil forces that come into play. It's a bit ridiculous, which is Ray Davies is a bit ridiculous. He's one of those singer songwriters that gets away with a lot of humor and a lot of wit in his songwriting and the depth of it often comes out, uh, when you hear kind of a dry joke that he, that he tells, uh, followed by a very sad, uh, kind of forlorn, uh, picture and setting that he gives you of, of life in middle-class Britain in the 1960s. This is one of my favorite records of all time. I was introduced to this when I was studying abroad in 2007 and I probably listened to it a hundred times during that fall. It just really connected with me for a lot of ways. My own views on authority and on emerging out of college into the career world and what that was going to look like for me. Um, but it also has one of my favorite songs that has ever been written by any band, which we're going to play here in a little bit. Uh, this time tomorrow, a forlorn, almost war on drugs type ballad that uh, just makes you feel sad every time you hear it. It makes you feel that sensation of getting on a plane and leaving people that uh, you really love um, or getting on a plane and returning to them and knowing that tomorrow you're going to be able to see them, but you're still 30,000 feet up in the air uh, traveling at, you know, 20,000 miles. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's insane. Um, the, the emotions that, that he brings, uh, to four here. Uh, this record also, uh, was notably featured heavily in Wes Anderson's, uh, Darjeeling Limited. Three songs from this album were featured in that movie, Strangers, This Time Tomorrow, and, uh, Power Man. And that is my favorite Wes Anderson movie, uh, to date. And so a lot of, hmm. a lot of these sort of cultural, you know, unification kind of stories about, uh, traveling and missing people are all wrapped up in this record. So it's a really good concept album for me, but it's also a good concept album about the idea of the music industry and trying to make it. Got a blind spot, the kinks. I got to work on that. Um, next album I have is from a band that has multiple concept albums. The who, except not going to talk about Tommy <laughs> not going to talk about Quadrophenia. I'm going to talk about a concept album that never was, and that is Lifehouse. So after Tommy, Pete Townsend, he had an idea. Basically, he wanted to like make this his magnum opus, and he kind of came up with an idea about a diabolical future. A lot of diabolical futures and concept albums in the 70s, let me tell you. They're all post-apocalyptic. You know, all post-apocalyptic. 
a future where people, everything was programmed, life was like a TV show, and they, people could only live out their lives in test tubes, and there was no rock and roll music. There was no music. The only rock and roll could be experienced inside of a thing called the Lifehouse. And he tried to extend the concept by the who were supposed to camp out in one theater in England. And I think what he wanted to do was limit the audience and get a bunch of information about the audience members, things they liked, their own astrological signs and assign them sounds because he wanted to somehow get like one big audience-wide sound, kind of like the vibration of life. And it had all sorts of influences um, from the Far East and Indian mysticism. And basically, other than Pete Townsend, no one in the band knew what the fuck it was about. So when it came time to record it, there, uh, the producer... Glenn Johns, basically, I think he, either him and the rest of the band kind of talked Pete Townsend off the ledge, and the Live House became the album Who's Next, which, well, not a concept album, they have to sell it for making one of like, the greatest fucking rock records of all time. You know, small consolation. However, many of the songs that were supposed to be on Live House kind of became fan favorites and they were played live and put on like you know B sides, uh, songs like "Join Together," uh, "Pure and Easy," "Water," "Too Much of Everything." And if you really want to go deep into the Lifehouse, the Who just released, I think like a hundred and nine track, nine hour reissue of Who's Next called like the Lifehouse Chronicles, which kind of has every piece of music ever put to wax plus live versions it's kind of interesting because with the who's next songs before they eventually recorded them in england with glenn johns before then they had cut a bunch of the tracks in new york city and it's kind of interesting to compare those to the much better ones which ended up coming out of the uk the ones from new york are fascinating but not nearly as good so if you really want to get deep into the Lifehouse, plus I think it might come with a graphic novel, graphic comic book. But in addition to songs showing up on other Who records, I know some of the songs showed up on Pete Townsend's not very good mid-1990s solo record, Psycho Derelict. It's, uh, you know, it's kind of the thing that kind of haunted him for uh, the rest of his life, which is still ongoing. So... You got Who's Next. Most people would be very, very, very happy to make an album a third as good as Who's Next. But it's not Lifehouse. But that's okay. It's almost a argument in favor that the concept album should just be an internal band exercise to lead you to Who's Next. That's, that's a good way of putting it. That's certainly... Yeah, let's make all these songs in the name of a concept album and then let's call the fuck out of it and end up with who's next. There you go. And then you got the great album and you have the backstory that raises the mythology yeah. and you don't actually have to hear exactly. it unless you really want to. Like there are some of us that listen to all of the Bill and bootleg albums that come out. And then there are other of us mm. who say, okay, I've listened to highway 61 revisited. Can you tell me which, how many versions of like a Rolling Stone I need to actually hear? 
There's some of us that want to listen exactly. to Exactly. You know what I mean? Um, it's like I was looking at the Octung Baby like 30th anniversary issue yesterday. It's got like six remixes in mysterious ways. No one needs that. I think you need that, to be fair. I need it. Yeah. I, I think I might, you're the only person who I needs could, that, but I know what you mean. Maybe, maybe three. <laughs> I'll give it three remixes of, of mysterious ways. Do you remember when they released three videos for the song one? Yes. There are three one music buffalo. One is just Buffalo running across the screen. Yeah. And the other one is like Bono at a diner smoking a cigarette. And, and then the, the third other is one, like in the studio, right? I believe is a companion to a Meg Ryan Denzel Washington movie where one was the big theatrical release and so the music video is one of those like movie scene music videos intercut with like in studio footage yes exactly <laughs> i'm actually trying to read bono's memoir emphasis on trying but it was interesting i learned that the core progression for one basically was going to be the middle eights for mysterious ways and then edge took it out of that and turned that into one which is kind of cool. And Bono basically says that one is the song that saved you too, which will probably, that's either great if you're a fan. If you don't like you too, then you're like, fuck one, because that could have broken <laughs> them up forever. They hadn't written that. Anyway, the song we're going to play from uh, Who's Next slash Lifehouse is The Song Is Over, which is on Who's Next. Gorgeous, epic ballad featuring both the vocals of... Uh, Pete Townsend and Roger Daltrey. Amazing stuff. Um, so from the who and who's next, we are going to go to the modern world for our next concept album here, where I'm going to talk about one of my favorite albums the last couple of years. Uh, it's going to make yeah, it's my a good record. It's a great record. It's going to make my top albums list of the 2020s. When we finally do that episode in October of 2024, um, I don't think it will be extremely high up, but it will be on the list. Um, this is none other than The Weeknd's Dawn FM, which came out in early 2022. Uh, one of those records that made you realize we're going to be listening to new music from the jump here in 2022, because this was a great record released on January 7th, 2022. We're recording right now on January 17th, 2024. I have yet to hear a record that captured me the way that Dawn FM did in early 2022. Pretty special thing when this happens. Uh, this is a loose concept album. It's about the state of purgatory. It's about a journey towards light at the end of the tunnel. This is um, an album that features DJ, like radio DJ uh, narration by Jim Carrey. It's supposed to give you the sensation that you are in a overnight road trip listening to Dawn FM radio. Ultimately, what makes this record special for me is the new wave funk and electronic dance influences, specifically from the 1980s. This is glossy. The choruses are really big. Uh, you can imagine really crazy haired people in a futuristic setting uh, for the music video for all of these songs, this type of stuff you'd see on MTV in 1987 and be like, what the hell is going on right now? And someone with like a silver jumpsuit playing synthesizers and playing just like four notes, but they're like the best four notes you've ever heard. 
Um, I just love the vibe and the feel of this overall record. I really like road trip albums. And this to me almost feels like it fuses heartland rock with, uh, um, you know, really popular Coachella headlining R and B. Um, I like the weekend less than zero. Yeah. I was just going to say like the song less than zero specifically, like that sounds like a war on drug song. And that's the song we're going to play off of this record. That to me is like, if there is a musical style that we can build off of here in the 2020s, it is a fusion of heartland rock and giant 80s synthesizers and electronic beats and dance music like that right there. I'm here for it. Um, kind of like in chains, but done by the weekend type of thing. Harmonious dream done by, um, uh, I don't know, like Nicki Minaj or Megan the stallion. Um, I'm really, really, <laughs> I'd be into all of that. So this record, like it speaks to the concept because the overall, like you, you constantly get the radio that comes back in and it brings you back in on the idea of you're in the car, you're driving, you're going nowhere, but you're going somewhere. And where is the end of all of this? And by the end you reach your destination and it's a long record in that sense. It's about 50 minutes long and it makes you feel as though you've been on a journey with, um, uh, uh, with the weekend. It's really good. You've got own tricks point, never all over it. Max Martin's all over it. Uh, Jim Carrey, as I said, does the spoken word narration, Tyler creator, Lil Wayne. Uh, it's just, it's a wild record that felt very, very fitting for when it came out immediate post COVID that early 2022 era period in time where we thought, okay, are we, are we actually going to get back to normal now? Is it going to actually happen? You get that sensation throughout this record in a really cool way. So I'm, I'm super into this. Um, and if you have not heard it, I definitely encourage listeners out there to check it out. What is your last pick here, Dave, for concept records? This one is a layup for me. I'm sure I've talked about it on some point in the other 125 episodes of this show, but I'm going to do so again. Rush is 2112. The whole purpose of which the vinyl is basically to divvy up weed amongst your friends on that awesome album cover with the big rush and the 2112 and the pentagram symbol. Um, so the concept album, the concept is basically side A, and then there's another five songs somewhat unrelated to the concept on side B. But the title track, side A, 2112, was about 20 minutes long. And again, we're talking post-apocalyptic universe ruled over by the evil priests in the temples of Syrinx and their computers where there is no music, no rock and roll music to speak of. And then an individual finds a guitar in a cave and plays it and realizes, ooh, this music is amazing, and brings it to the priests. And the priests say, don't waste our time. And the individual simply cannot live in a world with no music, so he commits suicide. And then somehow the Solar Federation takes control of the planets. I don't know. And the whole thing is allegedly um, a tribute to Ayn Rand, mm. the Fountainhead. Of course. Which the lyricist, Neil, yeah, exactly, figures. The lyricist, Neil Peart. Like a lot of angry men in their 20s thought that Ayn Rand was the shit. So 
But what's great about 2112 is that you don't have to actually care about Ayn Rand or any of that shit to enjoy it because it rocks like a motherfucker. The overture in Temples of Syrinx is some of the greatest loud A minor chords played angrily with drumming will make you want to jump up and down and shout to the heavens. So... Even better is uh, the version that came out, I think, a year later on the live album, um, All the World's a Stage, which is basically like 2112 on speed. And um, I didn't think of Russ as much of a drug band until I recently read Geddy Lee's excellent memoir. And you'd be kind of surprised. They did the share of indulging. It kind of... um, you know, it didn't overwhelm them at any point. They kind of, once they got out of the early 80s, they they sought better and more constructive ways. But, uh, yeah, 2112 was one of the best weed records, one of the best rock records, and the five songs on side beat are all very good, no slouch either. Even uh, the last song, Something for Nothing, which is basically a ripoff of Led Zeppelin's Baby, I'm Gonna Leave You, with lyrics about self-determination and John Galt and all that great stuff. So, but the song we're actually going to play here is uh, A Passage to Bangkok, which is uh, a celebration of all the finest marijuana fields in the world. Rush being the dorks they are, they can't just go to the corner, they can't just go to the corner store and buy the weed. They have to take a trip to uh, Afghanistan in Colombia and Kathmandu and uh, sample the yield over uh, a great riff. So 21 fucking 12. Let's go. Can I tell you something potentially embarrassing? Mm. There was a period in my life where the fountainhead was like my favorite book I'd ever read. So yeah, much. So. It. <laughs> so much. So that my fantasy tour handle for a bit was Howard Rourke and (laughs) I met a good friend in South Korea by way of fantasy tour and I I made a post one day anyone in Korea or anyone who likes fish in Korea and this guy responded and we connected we we're still good friends to this day and he still calls me Rourke that is still (laughs) his name for me um all right I don't know how that book would read at almost 40, but I'll tell you what, at like 21, as a, as a male rising in this world, trying to figure out what my destiny was, what, what is it that, what is the great work of my life going to be? The Fountainhead really spoke to me. So, um, judge me not for who I am. Just judge me for what I've done throughout my entire life. How about that? It's like I saw something recently, like a Mastodon, somebody posted that like something like Christopher Nolan makes movies for dudes who put like David Foster Wallace quotes in the dating profiles. Speaks very clearly to me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I feel that very, very heavily. Have you seen Oppenheimer yet? No, it's on the list. My God. I, I have to see it. Oh my God. Talk about I just the- saw Killers of the Flower Moon. I need like something more uplifting. Oppenheimer. Just watch Barbie again. Okay. 
or go see poor things. That is, that is uplifting and crazy and insane. Um, so my last record here is a record that, um, is very near and dear to one of beyond the pond's favorite people on the planet. And so we're going to give him a shout out, but the record is Willie Nelson's redheaded stranger, which is a concept album. This was inspired by the song, the tale of the redheaded stranger, which Willie used to play as a disc jockey in Fort Worth, Texas. He covered the song and he arranged details around the, um, Protagonist returned to Austin, Texas from Colorado. And then he went on to write an entire album about the song, which is a song about a fugitive on the run from the law after killing his wife and her lover. The protagonist, the redhead stranger, is a pastor, and it's all about the violence that overtakes his life when his love is taken away from him. Um, this... If you know anything about this podcast, and if you know anything about the album Redheaded Stranger, you know that in 2019, we both traveled to Nashville, Tennessee to record a live episode on the back patio of the Redheaded Stranger Taqueria in East Nashville, run by one of my best friends, Brian Lee Weaver, one of our closest friends here at the podcast. Um, I reached out to Brian uh, to get a sense of why he named the restaurant after this album and why the album continues to be a really important and um, uh, really special album in his life. And I got this in response. Um, he said, I love the album because a red haired girlfriend gave it to me. She had blue eyes and we used to cry together in the rain. Yes, the above is true, but it did also immediately become one of my favorites uh, one of my favorite albums, the only country that I was really into at the time was Hank Williams three, but he was kind of a gateway into outlaw country. At the time I was listening to a weird mix of Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska, Elliot Smith and eels and redheaded stranger fit perfectly at the time. I named the restaurant that for a number of reasons. I did have the name in mind before I moved to Nashville, but I didn't seriously have an option to open the place until I moved here but it's a connection to Nashville is quite nice for me. I also wanted something that would remind people of Texas and he got his music career started in Fort Worth where I was born. I wasn't sure if there were issues with me using the name. So I emailed his website and his granddaughter wrote me back within an hour saying I had their blessings to use the name. She has since been into the restaurant and is very, very nice. Finally says that I'm shocked at how many people have never heard of the album surprised how many Nashville people have no idea about Willie's politics either. I love the name being unique for a restaurant, but I do feel like his biographer sometimes once people find out what it is. I couldn't think of a more perfect name for the spot or the city and how we stand out from other places. Redheaded Stranger, not only a concept album about love lost, but also a concept album about love found because Brian Lee Weaver was able to take the food that he loved from his childhood and bring it to Nashville and cook it in such amazing ways. Uh, I love this restaurant. I love Weaver and I love this album. I listened to this a bunch over the last couple of weeks. It really compliments where my headspace is at coming off of reading Lonesome Dove and just the slowness, the silence, the pace, the beauty of the American West, the way that love just 
seems to travel across the the prairie of this country from one spot to another and leaves people in the dust and leaves people just traveling for days and days on end in search of something. And this record certainly has that. So I love this. Um, We are going to listen to uh, Can I Sleep in Your Arms off of this. Uh, And we're going to go ahead here and listen to kind of a mashup of all of the songs that we featured here within this segment of the show. I hope that you all enjoy this.
So cold lying here all alone, and I have no hope to hold on you. And I sure. You, I'll do you no wrong. Don't know why, but the one I love left me. 
left me lonely and cold and so weak and I need someone's arms to hold me till I'm strong enough to get back on my feet Can I sleep in your arms Thank you guys for hanging with us here at the Recapped Fishes New Year's Eve 2023 performance, specifically the Game Henge set, uh, how special that was and how unique that was. Really appreciate you guys hanging with us here. Uh, we also spent some time looking at concept albums and diving into the concept of concept albums. What makes a good one? What makes one that feels a little bit like telling me the story rather than showing me the story. And we shared a few of our favorites as well as why we like them so much. So um, we are going to be back in February. Uh, as of recording today, I'll just give you a quick little hint of where this episode is going to go because we did our BTP prep work before this episode started. Today we found out, January 17th, that uh, Pitchfork.com is no more. It uh, has been folded into GQ magazine, GQ's website. No idea what this actually means for the site, if some of the reviews are going to be retained, if the news division is going to be retained, if there's ever going to be a Pitchfork Music Festival again. Um, Dave and I bonded over a lot of the music that was featured on Pitchfork and for even the length of this podcast, even though that website has been a very different place uh, than it was the 15 years prior, um, it's still been a really important resource for us and a way to discover music and learn about what's going on on, in larger culture. Um, So we're going to talk a bit about Pitchfork in our next episode, as well as Talk a bit about fish as well. We've got a cool way to spin those two concepts together. Something we've always wanted to do. So come back in February for that. Um, I'm excited about that. Yeah, that should be interesting. I'm curious to see how we can build that out. We've got some time to think about what songs we want to feature. But uh, certainly Pitchfork was uh, not what it is some 20 years ago. But, it, you know, I still went to that site every day to see 
what they were talking about. And if I heard a record from three or four years ago that I liked, I kind of went back to Pitchfork to see what they had to say about it, if anything. So it was always there, and now it sounds like it's not going to be. So interesting development. I know some of the writers that we, or editors that we liked and were friendly with were laid off. So I hope that importantly that they land on their feet. They're too talented not to. Absolutely. Um, So, yeah, we'll come back in February. We'll tackle that. But until then, we will uh, come back. We'll hold hands. We'll say kumbaya. We'll listen to some concept records. We will stare at the vinyl cover on the concept record until it becomes clear what that concept is. It's like we're sitting in our cottage dorm room by the lava lamp, staring at the vinyl gatefold of 2112, thinking, what is this going to say to me? And we'll go beyond the pond.